We're up to mitzvah number 47, and today we're going to cover mitzvah 47, and mitzvah 50, and mitzvah 261, and mitzvah 555. Why are we covering mitzvahs with such different places in the Torah? The answer is because this mitzvah is the mitzvah of capital punishment, and there's four different methods of capital punishment outlined in the Torah, scattered throughout the, the Torah, and... Clearly, the Torah does believe in capital punishment. And the reason why there are four different kinds, four different methods of capital punishment is because every severe sin that carries with it the weight, the punishment of of capital punishment is assigned which one of those four methods of execution is appropriate for such a severe sin. And the more severe the sin is, obviously, the more harsh the punishment is. Now, the Rambam, that's the, uh, he's the one whose order and organization of the four, of the 613 mitzvahs we are following, he is of the opinion that each one of the four methods of execution are its own separate mitzvah. It's a mitzvah on the court to oversee the laws related to this class of, of execution, whereas some of the other enumerators of the 613 mitzvahs don't count them uh, as, as mitzvahs at all. It's, it's one mitzvah, the idea that they have to govern uh, capital crime, but it's not four separate mitzvahs, even though there's four separate ways to actually fulfill, fulfill that mitzvah. Now, there's a deep point over here. I think it's a central point whenever we talk about, about capital punishment in, in Torah law that the reason why capital punishment exists according to Jewish philosophy is because that is a way of remediating, of expiating, of absolving the sin that brought about this particular punishment, meaning that this is not revenge. This is not someone did something bad against God, against society, against another person. And therefore, we have to take revenge. It's as, it's, like, it's as if the victim here is getting their day in court. It's not the way it works. Because revenge, it's not our job to do revenge. We're not allowed to do revenge. But the Torah tells us that we're supposed to try to do whatever we can to make sure that the sinners, they're able to atone for their sin, be expiated from it. And hopefully as a result of that, have eternity to exist as a soul, and all above, an unblemished soul or a less blemished soul. And the idea is, of course, the central idea of Judaism, that every time you do a sin, your soul gets a little ping on it. The bigger the sin, the bigger the ping. And then it has to be rectified, it has to be fixed, it has to be refined, it has to be remediated at some point. And therefore, ironically, we say that the idea of capital punishment is the greatest gift that you could give a felon who committed a severe sin is the fact that you could actually cleanse him from his sin by executing him. And therefore, the more severe the sin, the bigger the blemish is, and therefore the harsher the penalty has to be. It's not just let's execute them quickly. And of course, that is a part of, and the Talmud, when the Talmud discusses exactly how we do it, it does stress that we should try to do it as quickly and as penalty as possible. But there is a difference between the sins, and therefore there's a difference between the methods of execution. So much so that the Talmud even says that there's, you know, the four methods of execution, there's the two severe ones, the two more lenient ones comparatively. When someone is executed in a Jewish court of law, their body, the corpse, is interred 
in a special burial grounds. They're not buried with the rest of society, right in a cemetery. They're buried in a court-sanctioned, court-overseen burial grounds, and there's two of them because we don't want even to mix the people who die with the most severe uh, method of execution with the people who die with the least severe method of execution because one's a very terrible sinner and one's a bad sinner but not as bad. And therefore, the two most severe sins have their own burial grounds and the two least severe, least severe methods of execution have their own burial grounds and, and, and they're buried, uh, the people who are killed in that way are buried there. Now, what actually happens is that after the bodies decompose, their bones are exhumed from that particular burial grounds and they are reburied in their ancestral burial locations. And the idea being is that after the bodies decompose, they've reached a stage, so to speak, of atonement, and now they could be transitioned back, they could be normalized to be buried together with their family in their ancestral burial location. The Talmud also tells us that everyone who was executed in Jewish court of law is compelled to confess. And as we know, that when someone wants to repent, a integral component of repentance is confession. Where you acknowledge what you did was wrong, you acknowledge that you have sullied your soul, and that could be used as a, that's the, or that's a, the, the beginning part of, of repentance and of cleansing yourself from your sin. And again, the objective here with the execution of someone who is a severe sinner, did one of the things the Torah says carries with it the, the, the penalty of capital crime, that, uh, the objective is to, to cleanse them, and therefore they are compelled to confess. Now, an interesting way that this plays out, is that uh, one of the most, uh, again, severe, heinous, cruel, macabre sins that we know of is what's described in the Torah as Molech. Molech was an ancient uh, paganistic practice of child sacrifice, where they would take a child and literally kill the child as a way of appeasing the foreign gods, appeasing the idols. Again, it's heinous. It's, it's, uh, it's unconscionable by any, 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 no parent could fathom doing that, but that's what they used to do, and it was almost, almost common in antiquity. The Torah says someone who does that carries with it the most severe of the four methods of, of, of execution, and that is stoning. We'll get to the the, the four and the, the, the gradients of the four. However, this applies only when someone offers one, maybe even two ch- children to the Molech. What if someone decides to give his whole family, to kill them all, his, all of his children, and give them all to Molech? So then, capital punishment does not apply to them. And the obvious question is, wait a minute, if you kill one of your kids, you're executed. If you kill them all, how could you not be executed? You're even so much worse. And the answer is, is that the Jewish capital punishment system is a way of atonement. When someone's sins are so severe that they are beyond repair, there's no way for us to expunge the sin, and therefore we, 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 we don't touch them. Their hands off. Their sin's too unconscionable. It's too irreparable. It's too irrevocable. And therefore, we don't touch them because our capital punishment will not also carry within it a methods of a method of atonement and of cleansing. Now, it is interesting that the order that they appear in the Torah mirrors the order of severity from least severe to most severe. So let's quickly go through the four methods of capital punishment of execution of the Torah. A number one is strangulation, asphyxiation. That is considered the most lenient. Then there is beheading. Then there is burning, 
burning actually is interesting. It's not actually burning the way you would think of it. You don't put them on the the uh, on the stake. It is done with uh, an internal burning. We'll t- see more about that in a minute. And finally, there is stoning, and it's really not really stoning. It's more like uh, defenestration. It's more like chucking someone off an, uh, a building, uh, as, as we shall see. But I think it's always important, you know, whenever we talk about this today uh, in our society, the notion of capital punishment and and the idea of killing someone, it seems very, um, very harsh. And especially when we talk about the ways that the Torah outlines, it seems, it seems very outdated, it seems very antiquated, it seems maybe a little barbaric. So I think it's important to give a basic introduction about capital punishment. And of course, we spoke about these ideas in the past, but now we're talking about it. It's important to stress that it's almost impossible for this to actually happen. Why? Because there are draconian ordinances to prevent it from actually happening. And you see the theme. We study the, the book of Sanhedrin, the book of the Talmud that deals primarily with the responsibility of the court. And a large part of it, a large part of the book is dedicated to capital punishment. You see again and again that everything is set up in a way to try to prevent a capital punishment execution from actually happening. So, for example, the only way someone can be executed in a Jewish court of law is if they were previously warned by two legitimate witnesses that if they do that, they will get executed. In addition, they have to not only hear the warning – they have to accept the warning, meaning that the person has to say, oh, I know exactly what's going to happen to me if I do this. I know that you'll bring me to court and you'll have me executed, and I'm doing it nonetheless. They have to indicate that they're fully aware of the consequences of their action. Moreover, it has to have an immediacy, meaning you can't warn them a week prior, and then a week later they do it, that wouldn't work. It has to be immediately in the act, right? Right as they're about to do it, it has to be, the warning has to be conveyed. And the witnesses are passed through a very rigorous, intricate cross-examination and intimidation. And in fact, the court themselves, the members of the court, the 23 justices of the court that oversee such a capital crime case, they are tasked. In fact, one of the myths of the Torah is the responsibility of the court to do whatever they can to try to find exculpation for the accused. Meaning that not only is there a presumption of innocence, innocent of of proven guilty, even if when there is a presumption of guilt, the court is, is, is responsible to do whatever they can to try to find a, a way to acquit the accused. And in fact, the Talmud tells us, based upon verse in the Torah, that they have to get together. Anyone who who wants to propose an argument of acquittal is right away elevated. Anyone who wants to propose an argument for guilt is quieted until very much later. We start the court proceedings with, okay, what's the arguments for for innocence? Uh, If someone is ruled innocent, they can't be brought back to maybe be considered guilty, whereas if they're ruled guilty, we're always trying to appeal the decision, even up to the very moment they're being executed, we're always appealing, or that that, that uh, is, is constantly being churned over, even after a guilty ruling is 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 given over. Uh, the court, the members of the court, they're not allowed to eat the day before they give such a ruling, because they have to focus solely on that, and they have to really 
understand the gravity of what they're doing. Uh, in fact, the famous adage that the Talmud tells us that every person is obligated to say the world was created for me. Very famous adage, Chayav Adam Lomar. A person is obligated to say, Bishvili Nivraha Olam. The world created for me. Where does that appear? That appears in the intimidation that the court gives the witnesses. The witnesses, you're about to levy a an accusation against someone that could potentially result in them being executed. You have to realize that it's almost as if you're taking the whole world, because one person equals the whole world, and you're going to destroy the whole world. It's part of the gravity of the situation, the fact that if there's any reason at all to to push the case off, to 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 find acquittal or at least exculpation, we don't have evidence of guilt, they would do it. So much so, the Talmud tells us, very famous teaching of the Talmud, that if a court executes someone more than once every seven years, according to one opinion in the Talmud, according to second opinion in the Talmud, it's once every 70 years, that is a bloody court. Why? Because they're, they have bloodlust. They're trying to kill too much. They're not doing their job of making sure that they're acquitting someone. They're, they're turning over the world, turning over every stone to try to find acquittal. They separate the witnesses and they ask him all kinds of crazy questions. Like the example that Talmud gives, oh, you say the murder happened near a tree on this and this day, in this and this location. Oh, what kind of tree was it? Oh, it was a fig tree. Were the, were the stems of the fig on that particular tree, of the figs on that particular tree, were they thick, like healthy, robust ones, or were they thin, kind of flimsy ones? And the objective is when you separate these two witnesses and you're, you're asking them identical questions, but they don't know what the other one is saying, that's a way to try to get them to contradict each other. And if they contradict each other, then their testimony is thrown out and everyone's off the hook. And of course, the witnesses have the threat of them being proven as false witnesses and then they get, they get the punishment that they try to give. So if you have two witnesses, who concoct the story, oh, we saw this guy commit this and this sin, he's guilty of capital punishment. If there are other witnesses that say, oh, you too, you weren't there in that location seeing this person commit that sin, you were with us elsewhere. Then those two witnesses, who are now proven to be false witnesses, they themselves will receive the same punishment that they tried to incur onto the accused. So if they wanted to execute the accused, they themselves would be executed. Again, what we see from here is that while the Torah describes many sins that carry with it the weight of, of capital punishment, in actuality, it was astonishingly, vanishingly rare for someone to actually get executed. I'm sure it did happen, maybe once every 70 years, but again, it was it was very rare. And in fact, the Talmud tells us, that same Talmud, that Rabbi Akiva and his colleagues said, well, if we were on the court, we were we would use the legal dexterity of trying to find all kinds of methods uh, or of arguments for acquittal that no one would ever pass by us. There would be no way to get someone to – if we were in the court, we, we would be so deft, so adept at cross-examining the witnesses and turning over the, 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 the legal stones that no one would ever get executed. And then those who argued on them would say, well – if we're too harsh on the witnesses, if we're too exacting 
in the evidence, well, then the real criminals will get through. And that's and that's the tension. We want to have uh, a situation where if someone is really a criminal, especially if they're a danger to the society, they could be executed, put away, and society will be saved, and they will be saved because they'll be cleansed for, them, for their sins. That's what we want. But we don't want to do it uh, willy-nilly. We want to be very, you know, have the... The, 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 the severity, the gravity of the situation, but not to, uh, but to not to be too exacting so that people can know that get away. But of course, Robert, he was in the court and he is going to make sure that we're going to be proven innocent or we're going to be exculpated from that. Now, there are some exceptions when the, the judicial system that we described previously does not apply. So the first exception is the enticer of idolatry. One of the people that is uh, one of the most severe sins as as outlined with the Torah is someone who entices others to commit idolatry. Something like that because they're not just sinning themselves. They're causing others to sin. It's a very severe sin because, of course, idolatry is the worst of all sins. And this person is not just doing themselves. They're also spreading their poison, their venom elsewhere. Someone like that, a lot of these ordinances don't apply. So we're more lenient with the examination of the witnesses. We don't have to have them accept that the the um, the warning so we could hide witnesses kind of in the closet. And therefore, the guy looks around, there's no witnesses. Oh, there's no witnesses. Oh, let me try to entice you. Oh, there's this idol and it's really cool. We should go worship it, right? And then the witnesses jump out from behind the the, the closet and grab and bring him to court. So normally, the, 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 the accused, the guilty, has to know that there's witnesses, has to be aware of that, that is, uh, that doesn't apply with an enticer for idolatry. There's other laws. We don't have to try to find them innocent. We don't have to start off with arguments for innocence. Uh, even if they're found innocent, we could still retract and bring them back as guilty. And that's, that would be one exception that the, the Masis and the Mediach, these are the people that try to get others, others to sin in the sin of idolatry. That would be one exception. A second exception would be a murderer. Because someone is a mur- who is a murderer, it's a, he's a very um, big danger to society. Even if they get off on a technicality, there is a situation in which the court would not execute them, but would ensure his death in a roundabout way. They'd, they'd imprison him and manipulate his diet in a way that he'll die. So we're not killing them, but we're effectuating their death. We're taking the necessary steps to make sure that they're no longer a danger to society. Now, the Talmud in several places tells us that even today that the Sanhedrin was uh, dissolved and therefore with that, and the truth is when the Sanhedrin left Jerusalem, capital punishment ended because you have to have a Sanhedrin in Jerusalem in what's called the Lishkas Hagazis in the marble chamber, which is a part of the temple grounds. That was the Sanhedrin, the, the 71 member of Sanhedrin, because there's the big Sanhedrin, 71 members. There's the small Sanhedrin, 23 members. But all the other courts in Israel, in Judea, in the diaspora, all those courts, the courts the courts comprised of 23 justices that could oversee capital crime, they only had their mandate to oversee capital crime when the Sanhedrin was in session in Jerusalem. Sanhedrin leaves Jerusalem and that handcuffs all the other courts. They can no longer do capital crime. Moreover, today, if we want to reinstitute capital crime, uh, or really the Jewish system of laws, the thing we need is is the smicha, the ancient smicha, not the modern smicha. 
To do that, the Rambam outlines that we would have to have all the rabbis in Israel agree to reinstitute smicha. There was a, an aborted effort to do that in the 1500s, and uh, several rabbis were given smicha until the rabbis of Jerusalem said, no, you shall go no further. Uh, but we would have to have the the people who have smicha in order to ha- comprise the Sanhedrin uh, to be able to oversee capital crime. In fact, uh, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein was one of the preeminent uh, halakhic authorities of the 20th century. He had to undergo a a procedure and he asked for the exact details of the procedure because he wanted to make sure that he would not be disqualified from being a member of the Sanhedrin in the event that Messiah comes, rebuild the temple, and now we're looking for candidates. Because if someone is if someone is um, blemished in certain ways, they can't be a member of the Sanhedrin anymore. Someone doesn't have any children. There's many laws as to who could be a member of the Sanhedrin. But if if he was concerned that this procedure would maybe disqualify him, he was very interested in, in knowing about it. But today, for all those reasons, there's no Snicha, there's no Sanhedrin, there's no temple, there's no Sanhedrin in the temple. And therefore, we don't even have sovereignty uh, over, or there's no there's no Torah sovereignty over the land. Of course, there's Jewish sovereignty, but the state of Israel has yet to transition to uh, its ultimate destiny. Therefore, we don't have capital crime. So the Talmud, we don't have capital crime enforcement. So therefore, the Talmud tells us that even today, once capital crime enforcement is not present, but the theory, the idea of certain sins warranting certain punishments. That still applies. And that's not done by us. It's done by God. So the example the Talmud gives is someone who committed a certain sin and someone else committed a second sin. And uh, you could have them crash into each other. And it looks like it's an accident. But really, it's God executing them in the ways that they're supposed to get executed. Someone is supposed to get uh, a sin of stoning and they're in a building and the building collapses on them. If someone is supposed to get uh, uh, killed by... By, by fire and they're bitten by a snake and the snake, uh, the kind of the fire of the venom consumes them. Uh, someone is uh, supposed to get beheaded and they get kidnapped, taken hostage and, you know, they get beheaded by their hostage takers. That's what the Thomas says, which is an interesting idea that these sins are not the, – the, the punishment of these sins are not just an arbitrary punishment. There's a real reason for it and someone can still get their cleansing – even without the Sanhedrin, because God will ensure that they get cleansed. And this is, of course, a big idea. We think of it as punishment, but the truth is it's 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 uh, expiation. It's it's being cleansed. And therefore, it's kind of like, uh, it's not like a terrifying Talmud, Talmudic teaching. It's almost a comforting Talmudic teaching that we God is going to take steps to make sure that we get the right kind of punishment that we need so that we will be cleansed and we uh, our souls will be freed of the clutches of sin and then we'll be uh, we'll be cleansed by the time we arrive uh, back to the Almighty. Now, as someone is about to be executed, they are encouraged to confess. And the Talmud tells a story about Achan. Achan, of course, he makes an appearance in the Book of Joshua. But Achan, he was the one who uh, plundered from the booty, even though Joshua told him not to. And then as a result of that, in the following battle, it was, it was a disaster. 36 people died. It was because someone amongst the community had uh, had committed the sin. And they had to figure out who was guilty. So Joshua comes to God and says, okay, tell me, tell me who's guilty so I can get rid of him. So God tells Joshua, I'm not a snitch. I'm not going to tell you. Go find it out yourself. 
So Joshua puts, I think, I don't remember that details, but he puts the names of all the tribes in a hat and he picks out the name. And then he puts all the families into the hat and picks out the name. And then eventually finds that it's Achan. Achan's the one who did it. And then Achan says, well, if you have a, if you have a, the hat and it only says Moses and Aaron, if one of them is to be found guilty, right? So who says it's really me? So, so what Joshua did was, in order to make sure that the guy gets, uh, atonement, he led him to believe that if he would confess, he would be absolved and he would be free to go back to his house. And by doing that, he kind of, he pulled some wool over his eyes, but he got him to confess and that was for his own benefit so that he would actually be atoned for his sin. And indeed he confessed and he was executed uh, for, for his, for his crime. There's another interesting thing the Talmud tells us what happens right before someone's executed. They give them a little bit of, um, pain management, some sort of, uh, narcotics of sort, something like that to make them a little woozy, to put them a little bit under so they don't feel any pain when they're executed and they don't get, they don't act crazy and whatever. Um, it's some sort of, uh, I don't know exactly what it would be, but some, something to calm their nerves, a sedative of sorts. Uh, to be able to make sure that this this process goes as painless and as uh, efficiently, shall we say, as as possible. Okay, let's run through the four methods of execution and maybe talk about some of the details. Of course, there's books and Talmud and voluminous literature. We have to obviously be um, be sparing in how much we cover. So the first one is asphyxiation, and this applies uh, to uh, the most lenient of the sinners. And of course, there's a whole list of people that do get this, uh, this method of execution. One of them, by the way, is someone who commits adultery. Adultery would be included in, in, in this. Now, the Sefer Chinuch has an insight that the harshness of the death, because the Talmud has all these debates as to what's the most severe, what's the most harsh, what are the order of these four? Which one is the least, least severe, the, the most lenient, and which one is the most harsh? So his insight is that the harshness of the method of execution equals the length of time it takes for the person to die. And therefore, the longer the sin, so the more time someone acted in the sin, the longer the punishment and the more severe the punishment. That is his insight. Now, how would they do it? So they would first immobilize someone so they don't thrash about, so you wouldn't move. And they would do that by submerging him in manure till his knees, which is some kind of a way to kind of submerge him and to keep him in place. And they would uh, take a rope, wrap it around his throat, pull it until he dies. Seems pretty simple, <laughs> pretty, pretty basic. The next method is beheading. This one is a little bit more severe. Now, what is the difference? Uh, why is it important to know which one's more severe, which one is more lenient? The reason why is suppose you have a bunch of convicted felons. They're all guilty of of capital crime and they'll only be executed tomorrow. But then they're in the cell together. We don't know who's who. We don't know. Is this person supposed to be stoned? They're supposed to be beheaded. They're supposed to be asphyxiated. We don't know. So then we have to kill. We know they're all, they're all guilty of capital crime. We have to kill them all. But we can only kill them all with the most lenient of methods because we can't push someone to a more severe method, but we could push someone to a more lenient method. 
Uh, or alternatively, if you have one person commits two crimes, you know, the classical case is, uh, uh, you know, someone, uh, someone kills someone on Shabbos, right? So there's a Shabbos violation, there's a mur- murder violation. So that would be an example. But it's one act and it carries with it, uh, two punishments. You give them the more severe one, not the more lenient one, because the more severe one is, is inclusive and includes within it even the more lenient, uh, method. Uh, what if you have a bunch of condemned people that are intermingled with an innocent person? That, that's a big problem because then you might not be able to execute any one of them because each one of them can say, well, I'm the one who was really innocent. Of course, this would only result when there's really poor management of the, of the court and, and the holding cells. But in the event that would happen, you don't remember who, who's who. Uh, then you would not be able to kill someone because you can't kill. So you can't. You might not be able to kill any of them because one of them is really innocent and you can't kill the innocent person. Okay, so the beheading is the most common uh, punishment I would imagine because that's for a murder. Murder is beheaded, and it's interesting when the Sefer Chinuch brings down these four methods of execution, he gives an example of of one of the of one of the sinners that has this. Method of execution, and the example that he gives is someone who kills his slave. And this is maybe pertinent to some of the things we talked about in the past. The idea of when you have an, even a non-Jewish slave, when you acquire them, they undergo a conversion process. Yeah, they're your slave. Maybe you consider them your property, but they're actually their own individual person. They're a Jew. You kill them. You yourself are guilty of murder, and you yourself would be executed. Uh, this uh, The Talmud has a discussion as to what kind of implements are used to execute literally this mitzvah and uh, talks about the, the size of the blade. Uh, maybe it's a little too gory to go through it, but uh, it is an interesting discussion. And again, the it's interesting that even someone who committed a severe sin, a heinous sin, a sin that even today modern society say is something that is worthy of capital punishment. In the Talmud, the Talmud talks about the murderer and how we execute them, the objective is how do we do it in a way that is going to minimize the pain and minimize the shame. You know, we don't want their head rolling around. That's the example the Talmud gives. We don't want their head rolling around. Yes, they're a severe sinner. Yes, they're one of the worst people we could ever imagine. Still, let's try to do whatever we can to preserve the dignity. In fact, when the Talmud talks about someone who is stoned, so first they chuck them off a building. How high is the building? So it's a problem. Because if it's too low, they're not going to die. If it's too high, then it's going to be a very messy death. The Talmud, says have, the Talmud says we have to find the sweet spot, the Goldilocks zone. That it is still high enough to kill them, but not too high that their limbs start scattering and they, you know, they, it's, it's a huge mess to try to scrape them off the pavement. pavement. What is the source of that sensitivity to again try to find that sweet spot? You have to love your fellow as yourself. Again, some of the worst people you can, you can imagine committed sins with witnesses and they actually went through the rigorous cross-examination Then they were actually found guilty once every 70 years. Still, even though someone is such a severe sinner, they're still your brother, you still have to love them and therefore you have to try to find a way to have them have a more uh, dignified or less undignified method of execution. The next method of execution is uh, fire. And it's not like you may think you take a bunch of wood and you put them on the pyre and you just put them on fire. That's actually not how it's done. 
The way that it's done is the person, again, is immobilized, and we take molten lead and pour it down their throat. And it kind of kills them from the inside. Now, this is given to someone, for, by the way, who does the sin of, of raping their own daughter. It's one of the one of the people that uh, has this uh, punishment. Um, uh, it's, it's 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 actually one of the more rare ones. Uh, there are very few people that are given this method of punishment, and there's an interesting Talmud about this. Actually, the Talmud says, "Wait a minute, that's not fire. I know what fire is. You make a fire, you put someone in the fire, you roast them. That, that's what that's what fire is." The Torah says, "You burn them in a fire." How do we know that this is considered fire? So it's interesting. The Talmud says that the sons of Aaron, when they did their unsanctioned work in the tabernacle, they were burned in a fire. But it says afterwards that they were carried out with their clothing on. They were carried out by their tunics. So obviously we see from this that they were killed with an internal fire. And the way the Talmud describes it, there were two ropes of fire that went through their nostrils and burned out their soul but kept their body intact. And Thomas says, oh, we see that this is called fire, even though their body is intact. It's burning of their innards, not of their external parts. So that gives us legitimacy or credence to the idea that burning someone internally is also considered burning. But anyhow, that would be the way that that's, that person is executed. And finally, to wrap uh, this very interesting and pleasant discussion uh, up, we'll talk about the method of execution of stoning, which again is given to uh, many different uh, sinners. For example, someone who commits idolatry, of course, the more, the most severe sin. Again, there's a whole list in the Talmud of, of who falls in, under the category, uh, but it's called stoning, even though the real way, the way we kill them is throwing them off a building or off a very high platform. If that doesn't work, then the two witnesses, by the way, the two witnesses have to do it which is another important point, that they have to literally, they don't, you don't outsource this to some sort of, you know, masked executioner. You have to do it with your own hands because you are a- a- expunging the world of, of this menace, which, again, puts a lot more skin in the game for someone uh, who is the witness. But uh, they shove them off the building. If that doesn't work, they drop a boulder that has to be held by two people, a very heavy boulder, and drop it on him. And that should get the job done. If not, uh, then we have to uh, invite others, shall we say, uh, uh, to to participate uh, in that. So that's uh, the final method of execution, the the, the one of stoning, uh, which is given to the most severe of sinners in the event that they're actually found guilty after the most rigorous and, and draconian uh, procedures done in the court with the witnesses and of all the boxes are checked, in the very unlikely event that someone is actually executed, once every seven years, once every 70 years, uh, this is a mitzvah of the Torah for us to get rid of the evil, to eliminate the menace and the, the terrible people from the world. It's for their benefit. They atone, they get atonement, they confess, and they, their soul can live on, uh, in eternity. Uh, today we don't have it, but this is a mitzvah for mitzvah of the Torah, 47, 50, 261 and 555, the four methods of execution of a Jewish court of law.